Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and with me today I have Dr. Ken Tai. Dr. Tai is the immediate past president for California Pharmacists Association, the CEO of 986 Degrees Corporation, and also an assistant professor at Western Health Sciences and University of Southern California Colleges of Pharmacy. He's also a graduate, graduate from USC, so go Trojans, and welcome to the podcast, Dr. Tai. Well, hey, thank you, Eric. I really appreciate you inviting me onto the show. Yeah, so we, we wanted you on here today because of some of your role with California Pharmacists Association and a law that they helped pass recently called No Pharmacist Left Behind. Can you explain kind of what this law is and what it does? Well, yeah, actually, this is a this is a huge uh, piece of legislation. Um, you know, this is believe it or not passed back in 2018, and I think it's getting a little bit more of uh, publicity or a little bit more, you know, uh, acknowledgement because uh, September 15th, um, the Board of Pharmacy in California finally w- uh, enacted uh, the uh, legislation, and now um, it's in sort of full effect. And from that vantage point, you know, it's a big deal. Obviously, it came about because there was, you know, honestly, a lot of media and unfortunately negative media about some of the working conditions at various chains. Uh, you know, some of this, the staff, the pharmacists in particular, uh, really felt that there needed some safeguards in order for patient safety, um, as well as uh, to allow them to be able to do their jobs and feel comfortable doing their jobs without, you know, potentially creating harm to the patients that they're servicing. You know, I, I think it's a huge piece of legislation. Uh, the ones that it really affects is, are really the employee pharmacists that are classified as community pharmacies, which it's sort of a general term, but really what they're meaning is chain pharmacies that own more than five stores. So it's a, you know, it's, it's a big deal. You know, I'm, I'm happy for some of the pharmacists, especially those that are employees that we represent in our association at CPHA, which does encompass a very large population of our membership. Yeah, so this really started as a patient safety issue more so than, than anything else. Was it also a little bit of like maybe the pharmacist safety and pharmacist licensure protection here, given that that way they can be, you know, like you said, adequately staffed to make sure that they're not making errors or they're reducing errors or to avoid things like robberies and things like that? Yeah, 100%, Eric. I think that you really just hit it on the head there in regards to the focus. You know, I mean, uh, obviously patient safety is, of course, the utmost importance, always priority number one. And, of course, you know, as pharmacists, as professionals, we've, we've gone to school for, you know, four years, uh, a graduate doctorate programs, graduating, and we're, we're here to, to protect the, the community that we serve through uh, taking care of their health, dispensing medications and whatnot. And we have to, you know, have the right tools you know, to do that job, um, whether that's uh, technicians or clerks or just interns or, or anybody for the matter, ancillary staff that we have. And when you're in a situation where that's compromised and you're really bare bones and you're barely able to kind of get by the day and sometimes stay after just to get the work done on most days. And of course, this is any of those stories that we're hearing quite a bit as an association. We felt sort of the, some of the pain of some of these employee pharmacists at these uh, work conditions. And we definitely knew that we wanted to do something for them, and I'm just grateful that, you know, something was acknowledged that, uh, you know, we need to provide a, con- a work condition that, uh, you know, would allow them to do their jobs and do them safely and also, of course, for the sake of our the public, you know, the patients that we service. Yeah, now one thing you kind of mentioned too was this is mainly targeting chains that are 
over, I think it was, you said four or five stores. Was there a reason that you, they kind of picked that number when they were looking at it? Or was there, was there pushback from some of the smaller, truly independent, like standalone pharmacies? Yeah, I, I think that there was definitely, and I, again, you know, I think there was some pushback, but more importantly, I think that it was also isolating, you know, where the issues are really being experienced and seen, you know, based off of the feedback from the pharmacist. And really, you know, this type of issue, it does not generally affect smaller independent pharmacies. Um, and of course, there's a, a list of actual areas where technically this particular legislation and, and now regulation by the pharmacy is excluded. And of course, independent pharmacies are one of those. And usually independent pharmacies are defined by um, a chain that's less than five stores. Um, there's also hospital pharmacists, pharmacies, I apologize, governmental ph- uh, pharmacies, you know, and, and of course, there's a few others out there. But um, in general, you know, they, they, they're trying to really isolate this to an area that it's being, you know, most impacted, you know, by this particular station. And, and of course, that area is um, typically in the chain setting. Okay. And when I say chain, you know, basically a, a pharmacy organization with five or more stores. You know, one thing I think about when I look at like pharmacies and I don't know, we really discussed a whole lot leading up to this point of the podcast, but is there anything that like will allow for like technological advances in there? Like maybe if they can have like remote order entry or remote remote uh, verification to help kind of free the pharmacist up to minimize the amount of double checking they have to do on themselves when it comes to this law? Or is this kind of like we always want somebody there because we want to make sure that they can there's someone to answer the phone, help address people and to allow them to do their job while they're physically there? So I, I would say that at this point in time, the legislation does not address that in terms of virtual or remote, you know, dispensing or whatnot. But um, you are right. They are trying to address the fact that, you know, uh, and it's, it's beyond just uh, the doing the work. It's also patient safety, right? You know, there has been uh, obviously most folks that are in the pharmacy world knows that there's a, a quite a bit of robberies or, or, or burglaries or whatnot at the pharmacy, right? Um, mainly because of the fact that, you know, there's controlled substances, which are, extremely coveted in the streets uh, unfortunately yeah so that's something that i think was definitely a part of the thought process as they push forward this particular legislation and actually the the uh, writer of this bill was uh, senator wiener and he is, is a great friend of pharmacy and has, and, and um has uh, you know definitely worked with cpha to look at what the true implica- uh, implications of this particular bill would do and, and as a matter of fact one of the particular areas of of uh, focus was actually uh, controlled substances. And if you actually don't, if you're a pharmacy that actually does not sell controlled substances, you're actually exempt from this particular you know, regulation. So, you know, definitely that was on top of mind, um, you know, safety of the, of, of the, of the pharmacist, because it, it's, you know, when you're there by yourself, anything can happen, you know, and doesn't really help the situation with the rise of these type of crimes. Yeah. And this also applies to like 24 hour pharmacies too. So if there's a pharmacist overnight per se working at like a big chain, high volume store. They also have to have a technician there with them as well. Correct? Yep. 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 So now, now some of the chains though that are 24 hours, they do have drive throughs So if you do have a drive through you're sort of exempt as well. So I guess if you're a 24 hour store that is, 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 does not have a drive through then you would, you would have to, of course, you know, have to fulfill the requirements of this particular legislation. Okay, so that way they can shut down and kind of go to drive-thru only to avoid that robbery type of issue or that overwhelming issue is kind of what the thought process is there, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. The uh, So the interesting thing is that you said that if you don't dispense a controlled substance, you're kind of exempt from this. But I can't imagine there's too many pharmacies that don't 
dispense controlled substances to meet that exception. Is that correct too? Yes. You know, I, I obviously can't speak for all the non-controlled substance pharmacies, but I would say that the majority of the pharmacies that, you know, we're aware of do uh, dispense controlled substances. I think the only exemption that I can think of would be maybe some of them that are online or that are cash only, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, type pharmacies. Um, and I know that they, you know, are at this point, some of them do not dispense controlled substances just because of the liability and whatnot. So. That makes sense. Yeah. And it, just kind of give people a little bit of backstory here. I know in where I work, almost every time there's a robbery, it happens either overnight at a store or during like slow hours or when there's just the pharmacist there. So I really think that this is a great law because of that, just as a, as my own personal safety, because you know, there's so many times that we, when I've seen it happen is they'll go in and they'll distract the overnight guy. They're asking where something is. He'll come over the counter, show him. And that's when the robbery occurs. So if you have someone else there, it really avoids that. And there's been numerous times that's been kind of mitigated. Have you, is that what you guys were seeing in California as well out there? Yeah, you're, you're, you're absolutely right, Eric. Um, as a matter of fact, this is what we're hearing from so many pharmacists, especially those in the chain area. And, and by the way, I mean, these robberies are obviously not, um, you know, specific to chains. I think a lot of other pharmacies in the community, uh, independents and whatnot, obviously also experience this, you know, robberies or, or burglaries or whatnot. But it, it definitely is uh, very helpful, uh, I would say, even a deterrent to some extent when they know that the pharmacists always have, you know, uh, some type of help, right? Um, it, it just, I mean, everyone wants low hanging fruit, as even criminals, right? Yeah. And so when they are, um, and they're very smart. I mean, they obviously, uh, you know, camp out and make sure they know the schedules and the timings and everything. And they always come at a time when you have the least amount of staff and obviously when you're most vulnerable. I think, um, they, you know, when you're by yourself, that obviously fits into that category of being vulnerable, right? Because uh, sometimes you, you just uh, are not able to, especially when there's patients everywhere and you're, you're just running around, you know, you're going to overlook certain things. You might not be as attentive to, you know, who's walking up to you and, you know, what they might be carrying or what they might be trying to do. And um, I think this is something that um, would, you know, I don't know if it'll completely, you know, uh, be a deterrent to stop those things from happening. But I, I do know that if nothing else, it would, you know, put the, uh, the pharmacists and the staff and whatnot in a better position to handle it, you know, if it does happen. Yeah, for sure. Because if nothing else, at least you have one other witness to help you know, spot the person, identify what's going on or possibly even, you know, mitigate it all together, which is, which is huge in a situation like this. And especially a state with California that has such a high population, you know, compared to where I'm at here in Ohio. So so one thing I was kind of thinking of was I know a lot of places around the country are seeing huge shortages when it comes to pharmacy technicians, um, just staffing in general. Right. And a lot of the places aren't just giving them another pharmacist because the payrolls are and budgets are what they are. If, if there's an issue like a technician calls off or something like that and it would put the pharmacy in violation of this, what are some of the steps that they would have to do or to take to stay to stay so they aren't in violation of the law? Well, I, I think that one of the things that they have created is the fact that you need to create a policy procedure, right, um, to sort of address, number one, you know, being compliant to the law, but also, um, you know, in, in terms of being able to to sort of answer that exact question that you address, which is that what if someone calls off and what happens? And I think one of the criteria that they put in there is that you might have multiple quote-unquote designated pharmacy assistants, right? Um, now, what does it really mean? Um, it just means that you have some type of system in place where, you know, that person has specific type of training, which, you know, as the reading goes, it, it probably is a pharmacy technician, right? That has access to the controls and whatnot. And you just have to come in with the system where, number one, you know, uh, that person's available within a five-minute request. Now, 
I don't know of anybody that can quote, quote, call in and fly over within five minutes. So um, that would mean that they'll probably need to schedule someone and just like a per diem pharmacist and whatnot on site. And if they don't have it, um, or there's a delay in getting that person to come, if there's a call off, then they might have to basically remain closed, you know, unless they can fulfill that criteria. So I, I do think there's some sort of details that maybe will work out, but, you know, I'm going by the exact reading of the law. And of course, a lot of this is also interpretation by the inspectors and by the board of pharmacy. It seems like they definitely have accounted for that from the standpoint of making sure that uh, there's a process in place, there's policies, procedures in the event that, you know, that, that this happens and they kind of call this the on-call process, so to speak, I, in, in which case you can quote, quote, designate maybe multiple people that can quote, 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 fit that designation, right, in the event there's call-offs. And so this is probably something that's more procedural that they need to do, no different than a uh, quote, quote, uh, per diem pharmacist or a floater pharmacist. They might need to have floater pharmacy assistance or floater techs or whatnot to satisfy this particular, you know, uh, legislation regulation. I'm really, you know, if it were me, I'm not worried about the nights where it happens like once, like it happens once a year. Like, I don't think that's like the intent here. You know, we all know that situations occur, but it's more if it's a, if it's a repeated thing or like it becomes a trend, that's really where we're more like, Hey, that now it's a serious issue. And with that, is there any way that pharmacists can like report, whether it be anonymously or not chronic abuses or chronic issues where they're in violation of this as a, as a way to like hey, you know, this is an issue that's a patient safety issue, also my safety. What's a good way that they report that or kind of share that? Yeah, and, and so I think that this is a very tough question, to be very honest with you, right? Because everyone's obviously a little concerned about you know, potential retaliation or whatnot, you know. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, our board of pharmacy does allow for anonymous reporting, right, of issues that might present themselves to be uh, violations of the law or regulation, and uh, usually it's anonymous. Technically, anybody can call a consumer, uh, obviously a, a, a pharmacist, a technician. There are certain regulations within our law that protects, quote, unquote, this whistleblowing type, you know, effect. And I, I, I don't want to even say it that way. It sounds a little bit negative. But the reality is that we, we really have to be very concerned about endangering the public, you know, right. by just leaving pharmacists by themselves. And so... I personally would think that if there's, uh, you know, uh, folks that are trying to maybe circ- circumvent this law and not fully comply with, you know, what the requests are to, to be, you know, for, for this particular regulation, that they should, you know, um, let the appropriate authorities, would, in, in this case, would be the California Board of Pharmacy, know, and they could report that anonymously. And I, I believe that that's something that, you know, a pharmacist, you know, especially those that fit this criteria, uh, employee pharmacists in the chain settings or what they call community pharmacy settings with more than five stores, they should, you know, be um, advocates for ensuring that, you know, everyone stays compliant. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think this is a, I think this is a great law for a number of reasons, especially when it comes to patient safety, like you said, for just so many different reasons that you have that second set of eyes, double checking you and really making sure that you're, you're not the only one there who's doing all the work and then missing some of that oversight that we really need as pharmacists and as well as just protecting people in general from things like robberies and stuff like that. Is there any uh, other, other thoughts you have on this law before we kind of move into a little bit different direction with the podcast? No, I, I think, you know, you really covered a lot of base there and I think I completely agree with you on a personal level that, and of course in the association that, you know, we've always wanted to protect the rights of our patients and definitely the integrity of our profession in terms of making sure that we are able to be, you know, given the right tools and the right resources to do our jobs. And I think that this is one of the regulations that really put us in that position, you know, to continue to 
uphold, you know, what we signed up to do as pharmacists, you know, which is to uh, protect the public and to you know provide the best care we can. Yeah, and the one thing I like is it didn't really hop into necessarily like a, a quota per se. We've seen some states have quotas for how many scripts a pharmacist can fill in a day or things like that. This doesn't necessarily step on that that toe of it, but I like the fact that it really does say, hey, look, here's what you need to have as like a minimum patient safety standard from a different angle without putting a number or a metric to it, if you will. So I think that's something that a lot of other states could really help help duplicate, especially when you're talking about some of these, you know, these high risk activities when like overnight pharmacists are by themselves or things like that in some of these other areas. So I think that that's a really good call out for the law that I really like that California Pharmacists Association really, really helps spearhead here. So thanks for making sure you guys uh, took, took care of your own pharmacists there. No, no, thank you. And I honestly think that, you know, we wish we could have done this a little earlier, but you all know that, you know, when it comes to the, the legislation and laws, it just takes time, you know, to really uh, push it through, to enact it, to find a champion. In this case, we're very fortunate to be able to uh, work with uh, the, the writer of this bill, uh, Wiener, for pushing this through. And we wish it came earlier, you know, but uh, I think it's better late than never. You know, this is something that we've wanted to to provide a big win for our employee pharmacists. And I'm just glad it's finally here. And even though it's been a little bit of a wait, <laughs> um, even after 2018, we waited another two years before it fully got, uh, you know, uh, put into effect. But again, always better late than never. Well, yeah, and it takes a little time to make sure people can staff up and to meet the needs of the law and to fully understand the implications of it. So I, I think that although it does seem like two years is a little bit of a, of a wait, it, it's a fitting timeline to make sure that places are staffed up, they have their budgets projected and all those type of things. So I think from a, a bigger scale standpoint, that actually is a, a huge win that it did get implemented and then there was a little bit of a, a lag time for it to start, in, in my opinion. So I think that's a, actually a good lookout by everyone involved in the process. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, you want to do this correctly. You know, um, you want to make sure that, you know, we, we allow everyone, including employers, ample time. You know, this was never intended to go against anybody per se. This is really, you know, meant for one main purpose, to ensure patient safety and to do whatever we can to help our pharmacists to do their jobs. You know, you know, we also want to respect the, the employers out there to make sure they had, you know, like you said, ample time to implement, prepare, and be ready for this. And I think, like you said, two years is, is a lot of time. So uh, to, 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 to make sure that um, everyone can, you know, quote, quote, you know, get their ducks aligned so that uh, when it finally became, you know, official, that they can fully execute the plan and, and make it happen. Yeah, for sure. Well, I, I can't let you go before I ask two questions I ask everyone on the podcast here. So I hope you're ready for them. They're a little bit different than what we're talking about the whole time. But if you could change one thing in general about pharmacy, not a law, just one thing in pharmacy about general, what would it be? Wow, that's a very interesting one. Um, you know, I, 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 you know, I'll be honest. I, I think you know we've uh, done a great job, sort of, sort of looking at our pharmacy world and looking at our profession and pushing the boundaries of of care uh, in terms of you know what we call pharmacist care, clinical practice, and whatnot. But I think we've done a quite a horrible job in ensuring that whatever we push for, that we're able to be in a position to get paid for it. You know, and I think that we cannot deny the fact that after going through all the schooling that we have, it gets a little bit, I would say, a little bit discouraging, you know, to think that most of the other professions that we work with and um, obviously have a great relationship with working as healthcare team member, um, they get paid for their services. But up until this day, we're still very much tied to a product. And I think that's one thing that I would like to see change, you know, uh, recognition, not just as a provider, but as a paid provider, which is the key word. You know, um, I, I feel that it's very fortunate that given all we do for our patients and for the healthcare 
uh, system as a whole that we, we, we can't be paid for the, the type of service that we render and, and not just for the products that we dispense. Yeah, that, that's huge too, because like you said, putting that incentive out there can really impact and motivate people to then make the bigger differences and go those extra miles or go those extra steps to really impact patient care and then drive down costs and things like that overall. So yeah, I think that's a huge distinction there is the paid provider or have provider status in this case. Yeah. yeah and I think, you know, we always say, oh, we need to prove our worth. I, I think we've done that. <laughs> I think yeah. we've done that in so many different ways. Uh, I, I can cite, you know, probably eight studies off the top of my head of how we've created value and every dollar spent is, you know, between three to $20 of a return on investment for the healthcare system. But yet up until this day, there's, you know, not many payers out there and, and, and insurers out there that are willing to pay us um, that $1 for that 3 to $20 return on investment, you know, um, in terms of uh, uh, hospitalizations or, or minimizing care or duplications of therapies and whatnot. And I think that's very unfortunate. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. We've done several podcasts on that. But yeah, no, I think that's a underlying theme of pharmacy right now, which hopefully will change with a new uh, new Congress coming in place here soon. Yeah, and, and, I, and again, I folks like, like you, Eric, who uh, basically pl- provide a platform for us to express that and hopefully to the right folks. You know, it's, it's not not the best thing to keep on talking to ourselves. We really <laughs> want to talk, to express these thoughts and ideas to people outside of the pharmacy realm. I think we, we have sort of talked this, this, this thought process and this concept to death. Uh, we need the, the, the doctors, the payers, the PBMs, the insurers, the health groups, the, the VAs of the world, the Kaisers of the world, everyone to hear this and, and to act upon it. And I think that's the key thing. And, and I think there's no better way than to find some type of platform like a podcast or whatnot to constantly, you know, let people know that, hey, you know what, uh, we're doing all these great things and we enjoy doing it for free. But at one point in time, you know, we also, um, like everyone else, you know, need to ensure that, you know, we can keep our doors open and that we can continue to do what we're doing by, you know, uh, being paid adequately for those services. Yeah, could not agree with you anymore there. Moving on to the last question here. If you could change one law in pharmacy, federal or state, since obviously I don't know California law that well, what would it be and why? Uh, that's a you know that's a great question, Eric. I can <laughs> see why you would want to continuously ask this question. And uh, if you were asking specifically about California, I am going to say that I would like the Board of Pharmacy to sort of uh, start managing or regulating the pharmacy world, um, not on a punitive nature, but more on a scope of practice perspective. I think that will completely change sort of you know how how we practice because. Um, uh, if you're like the the doctors of the world, the you know medical board basically doesn't tell you what you can do. They only tell you what you can't do, right? A pharmacy world, they tell you basically they don't. They, they say you can't do anything unless we tell you you can do it. So yeah. that's a little bit different, right? In terms of the perspective, so that really limits what we quote unquote can do, right? Um, and I think that if they can change that perception, which by the way, a few states have already started to implement this. Um, then I think it will completely revolutionize the way that we can do what we do and what we can do to help our patients. And um, also, you know, basically govern us not on a more punitive nature, but more on an education basis, right? Um, I think those are the things that would change our practice and put us in a position to continue to provide the care that we want to provide to the patients that we service, as well as to the healthcare system, who at this point, I think, greatly needs another sort of had a void created, right? And we all know that primary care physicians are all moving into specialties and that's a huge area of need. And I think that that's a particular area where nurses, uh, PAs, and especially pharmacists 
um, who probably of the of the three have the most education per se, at least in terms of number of schooling and whatnot. And also, of course, because of our doctorate degree, can easily come in and fulfill that need. And I think that in order for us to get to that step, we really need to change our sort of uh, uh, viewpoint on how pharmacy um, is regulated or governed by our boards of pharmacy. And I think that that's that's what I think. Okay, great. Yeah, no, I think that's a. I think that's a totally valid point, and especially when, you know, you're talking California, you have millions of millions of people more than we have here in Ohio, and if you guys have seen a major shortage out there, you know, why not enroll some of the pharmacists? Because you guys have, I think, the most pharmacy schools in the nation, if I remember correctly, which obviously fits with the population, so why not, you know, use some of those people and some of their knowledge to really, you know, kind of fill that void, if you will? Yeah, I mean, we, we uh, you know, we're very fortunate uh, to, to have quite a bit of schools as well as quite a bit of a pharmacist at this point. I think we're at about 46,000 pharmacists. We have uh, 15 schools of pharmacy with one opening, I think, uh, very shortly, uh, just received a pre-candidate status. We have a lot of schools, we have a lot of pharmacists, and we're ready and willing to go out there and fill this void to provide the care that uh, is is sort of very much needed, you know, uh, at least in, from the, in the area of primary care, you know, and I think that, you know, we're ready for it. I mean, uh, I think just a few years ago, uh, we uh, pass our advanced practice pharmacy, pharmacist designation, which gives us the authority to write, you know, uh, order labs and whatnot. And it just seems that we're itching, inching closer and closer to that point uh, where we can do so many of the things that some of the other providers out there do already. You know, we just need to, to uh, honestly have a governing body that recognizes that and trust us um, to go out there and fulfill our ultimate, I think, destiny as a provider. Yeah, no, I think that's a great way of looking at it. So, hey, uh, Dr. Ken, where can people find you if they want to uh, reach out to you on either social media or professionally? You know, I definitely have, uh, uh, well, I mean, honestly, I have my Twitter feed, of course, I believe it's at Air Farm, which actually, I love basketball, so excuse me, um, <laughs> and I love pharmacy. So those two things that I share. I also, uh, you can also email me, of course, you know, and then you could obviously, you know, uh, come and check us out at our chj.com website where you can definitely have access to our board members which includes myself and of course our current president dr clifford young all the other folks here in california and uh, my email is a uh, ken.ty at 986pharmacy.com if you guys have questions or whatnot uh, concerning this particular bill or anything california and pharmacy in general we more than happy to address that and um it was honestly a pleasure to meet you, Eric, and as well as uh, thank you very much for giving us this opportunity to you know, share ideas and thoughts about this very important piece of legislation, which we feel um, will be extremely impactful for our patients as well as for our employee pharmacists out there. Yeah, no, hey, the pleasure is all mine. I, I like making sure I can highlight when people are doing good things in pharmacy. So thanks again for uh, coming on the podcast, Dr. Ken Tai. And as always, listeners, you know, share this where you can and leave some feedback. Helps people find me on, on the podcast platforms. And thanks for listening to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics. Mm-hmm.